This is Eastman's Elevated Podcast. I have on great guests that are really knowledgeable, consistently successful. We're able to dive deep down the rabbit holes of these different subject matters of shooting, of physical fitness, of mental toughness and drive. All the different skills that make up a complete hunter that you can become. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So on today's podcast, I have back on my friend Jason Matzinger. I met Jason about 15 years ago on the construction site. He was working as an electrician, me as a carpenter. And even back then, he was so generous with his knowledge and information and also with his time. And so we've kept in touch throughout the years. Uh, Of course, he's created this great brand and just puts out absolutely top-notch uh, video films like um, he's so talented uh, with his editing with his filming and he's also a really talented hunter uh, so much knowledge in there so just a great guy that I have a ton of respect for and I really enjoy our conversations including today's so Jason has a new film out called Selective uh, go check it out it's an amazing film that documents Uh, hunting for this doll sheep that he went on and this doll sheep we talk about it in the podcast it's just amazing like this pushed his limits as a hunter of what he's capable of and and um, you know charging these big mountains and um, hunting with uh, uh, a really good guy that also is in great shape and so it just made for like this amazing in-depth conversation so I learned a lot on today's podcast make sure to go check out all of Jason's films uh, check them out uh, on the the sportsman's channel into high country and um, man, and everything he does, he's just a, a great human being and really enjoyed having him on the podcast. So thanks to him again for his time and being on. I want to thank our sponsors for today's show. I want to thank Juniper Mountain Coffee. Juniper Mountain Coffee is a family-owned business out of Oregon. Uh, they go down to South America and they source all their beans from local growers down there. It's why their roasts are absolutely amazing. So uh, really love the flavor of their coffee. Uh, They got some great roasts. Uh, They have an elk as their logo. So these guys are hunters. And I really appreciate their support on the podcast. So we lost the sponsorship from one of their competitors. And Juniper Mountain stepped on board and um, is sponsoring the podcast. They're listeners of the podcast. They're hunters themselves. And uh, I just couldn't be more proud to partner with this company, and I am loving their coffee. So that's all I'm drinking now is the Juniper Mountain Coffee. I'm so impressed. And uh, soon to be released, they will have some instant coffee, and there's no doubt in my mind that it'll be of high quality uh, for us hunters to be able to use in the field. So uh, if you're in the market for some coffee, if you want to try out some different roasts, make sure to go check them out over at Juniper Mountain Coffee. And thanks again to those guys for their support. I also want to thank Swagger Bipods. Uh, Swagger Bipods, are they have bipods that will mount to your rifle. They also have shooting sticks that fit in a case on your hip. They have all different sizes of bipods, so they can mount to your rifle. They also make it with a quick detach so that you can carry your bipod in your pack and then attach it when you get close to the shot. These aren't your standard bipods. 
These bipods were designed to be able to get great shots on animals, and shooting a rifle accurately is all about your rest. So they're spring tension loaded so you can shoot uphill or downhill. You can actually swivel on the bipod, so if that elk starts walking right or left, you can swivel and keep yourself on target. Uh, I've just found that these are great bipods. I've used them with my family a bunch, and it seems like you can always get a good rest and make an accurate shot with these things. And some of the different sizes, you know, you can definitely shoot prone with all of them, but you can also shoot sitting and uh, kneeling and uh, even standing on some of their bipods. So uh, there's a different model for all your different needs. If you're in the market for a new bipod, make sure to check them out over at Swagger. I also want to thank Outdoor Edge Knives. Outdoor Edge Knives makes a replaceable blade knife, and the knife is a bit burlier on there, uh, so it's not as flimsy. It doesn't break. Uh, you can really uh, cut up an animal quick, and having these replaceable, replaceable blades means that you never have to sharpen your knife. You just replace the blade, got a brand new razor on it, ready to go. Uh, so this makes it nice so you don't have to pack in multiple knives, you don't have to pack in sharpening stones, you just pack a handful of blades in there, and really I can get through an entire deer with one blade. Uh, elk, I like to change them a couple times, their hide is so thick that it tends to dull my blade, I put a new one on, and, and really being safe with a blade is having a sharp blade that you don't have to force, and uh, Outdoor Edge always has a sharp blade, so... Uh, you can really use the edge of that knife to process your animal. So I can process an entire animal, including getting the head off, uh, tenderloins, back straps, all the quarters off, all with an outdoor edge knife. Super lightweight and, uh, like I say, a little bit more rigid and strong in their blade design, which I really like. So if you're in the market for a new blade or new knife, make sure to check them out over at Outdoor Edge Knives. I also want to thank Black Ovis. Black Ovis is an internet retail shop that carries all the top name brands as well as their own name brand, which is uh, high quality as well. So I've seen a bunch of gear from Black Ovis and um, I've been really impressed with it from sleeping bags to puffy pants to uh, different uh, clothing items. I saw Clint was wearing some clothing items. So they really have some good gear there. And um, like I say, all the other top name brands, you can find absolutely everything you need for your next hunt. And you can save 10% off your order. Just put in the promo code elevated10 at checkout and uh, that'll get you some money off your order. I also want to thank Camo Fire. So Camo Fire is an app that uh, has brand new hunting deals that come up. So 80 new hunting deals every 24 hours. You can save a pile of money on overstock gear, extra gear items. So make sure to check those guys out at Camo Fire. Over at Eastman's, we just dropped a brand new Beyond the Grid with Dan's biggest bull to date. Go check that out. Uh, there'll be episodes dropping, I uh, believe, every Saturday. Or the next one comes out the 29th, and that's Dan's other big bull that he killed in Montana. Uh, so, so just some great films, great footage. I have some good mule deer ones coming up. I also have an elk one coming up I'm really excited about to share with you guys. So make sure to check us out on the new season. Just search Eastman's Hunting TV on YouTube, and uh, we'll pop up. There's a bunch of new, uh, bunch of older films on there, and also new releases. So films that were played on the Outdoor Channel that maybe you missed. Those episodes are now on our YouTube, so you can check those out. 
And uh, make sure to check out the magazines, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. Thanks for the support of the new podcast, you guys, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal. It's the one I do with Dan Bacar. So just search Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Life of a Bow Hunter. That'll pop up. It's on a different feed. Just really great episodes, full information. Uh, we just recorded one this morning, again, that we'll release this week. They release uh, every other Friday for right now. Uh, but check it out, man. It's an amazing podcast. I'm really proud about it. Proud of it. And, um, yeah, so we'll keep that thing rolling and uh, everything else we have at Eastman's. Appreciate the support on that. And, man, I'm just getting back from an absolute insane hunt. Um, man, hunting Hawaii was incredible. Hunting axis deer and uh, mouflon sheep and hanging out with buddies. And I just feel so recharged after a big hunt like that. Like, I, I actually never saw the beach or got in the ocean. And I was just going a million miles an hour. I was running off about three, four hours of sleep every night and just hunting my butt off, which is what I truly love to do. Uh, killed my biggest axis to date. I'll be releasing that on um, my social media. I'll be releasing some videos and photos and things of that nature. So uh, just trying to get caught up here, get this podcast out to you guys, and then um, get some work done on the construction site. But I'll make sure to get that post on social media. Man, we're counting down the days till Western hunting. So, uh, so fun. It's so uh, recharging. Like I was, you know, it was tough for me. I had a bunch going on and... Um, you know, it's it's tough to get everything in order. You know, I've got really good friends out there that helps with logistics, uh, but I was a bit stressed leaving from it, but I couldn't feel better getting back from it. Like, we are meant for these adventures, and um, yeah, I just feel like I'm living life to the fullest, so it was amazing. I'll talk about it in a future podcast, but let's get into this podcast. I've been rambling long enough. A great one with Jason Matzinger. Make sure to go check out his new film, Selective, and all the films he has out, all the episodes of Into High Country. Uh, just a, a amazing videographer, amazing hunter, and human being. Really glad I know him. So I'm your host, East. Oh, I'm your host, Brian Barney. This is Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Man, I really appreciate you joining me. Um, we uh, sat down the other night, or we talked the other night when we ran into each other. Uh, still just thinking about that sheep hunt and your experience up there, man. It was absolutely wild. Yeah. No, yep. it was, uh, I think I told you when we first sat down, I had a number of people tell me that I really look up to that when I was going on that hunt, they're like, it, it'll it change you. You know, you'll come back a change man. And Doll sheep hunt, right? Yep. Or, uh, yeah. Doll sheep yep. in the Northwest Territories. And, uh, man, they weren't wrong. It definitely redefined what I was capable of mentally, physically, and made me realize, you know, back home, I've been running at about 40% on my hunts, you know. Well, that's crazy for somebody like you to say, you know, you hunt so hard and uh, have so many trophy critters under your belt. I mean, uh, uh, the sheep hunt was kind of even overshadowed by that giant bull that you killed, but you had (laughs) such a great season and you have great seasons year after year. So to hear a guy like you say, hey, I'm only giving 40% because you went in the most extreme country you could to go hunt these sheep and then hunting with one of the fit you know, mountain hunters that's just uh, uh, accustomed to that, that sheep country, you know, yeah. that's just wild, man. That's wild for you to say. Yeah. Well, it was, I wish, uh, you know, everybody could have that opportunity to go up there and experience that. Cause mm-hmm. it, it, you know, not, not to get dramatic, but it, it, it will change you in one way or the other, mm-hmm. whether it's mentally, physically, you know, you, 
what I realized was about five days in, the only thing that mattered on that hunt was food, water, and shelter. Like the very basics of life. And it was, you know, it just came naturally. And you're thinking about things like, you know, you're already packing 60, 70 pounds of just your camp. Because we were mobile every day. It wasn't like we were going to a camp and then hiking out of it. We were just on the move every day. Oh, nice. And... um so the question was always like, okay, so we're going to the top of the ridge. Do we want to haul water up there or is there water up there? And that's one a question that we asked ourselves over and over, you know, because water obviously is one of the heaviest things you're going to pack around. And if it's at the top of the mountain, you don't have to pack it. So it was always this, are we willing to take that risk to save on weight to get to the top of the mountain to maybe find water? Because up there, you know, you know, you use water for drinking, but also eating. Everything's a freeze-dried meal. So you have two Nalgenes. One of those Nalgenes is going to go to food, mm-hmm. and one is going to be hydration. And so those two Nalgene bottles literally become your lifeblood, you know, of your thought process, of your movements, um, and your timing, and, and all of it. And so it's just really rare in today's world to ever find yourself only relying on the basics, you know, and everything else is completely irrelevant. Man. <laughs> um, so true that, um, water is that lifeblood of the backcountry, and it's such a gray area. You don't know where it's at hunting these high country muleys in a lot of these spots where we're doing hunting that same style with our camp on our back and making huge climbs up there. And yeah, you're right. You've got the, you know, a lot of times I have a hundred ounce bladder, two now jeans. I know I can get through a couple, two, three days, but there's a lot of time I'm risking it. And actually, you know, a lot of the best places I find don't have water because guys get up there with one Nalgene bottle full of water because it's the heaviest thing. Uh, one Nalgene bottle full of water and then they can't survive up there. And if I can pack two, three days worth of water, live where there's no water, those deer get the water from their food source. Mm-hmm. So it's a huge part of my strategy when I'm hunting. And I know, you know, some like hiking into Nevada this year, it's this huge 3,000 foot climb over the top and I've got this secret spring. But when I'm hiking up there and I'm running low on water, it's like, man, I hope that spring's running. Right. I, I hope that thing has water. Or if not, I, I'm going to be in trouble. Or I'm going to have to walk straight yeah. back down the mountain to go grab water. But uh, there, there's something. It, it is a, a cool feeling to just be thinking about those basics. Like you say, food, water, shelter, uh, keeping yourself alive. Everything else kind of washes away. So 100%. present. Yeah. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. So, so, so you booked this sheep hunt like what, a couple of years ago? 2018. Oh, wow. Me and a buddy were just like, we're never going to have the time and we're never going to have the money. But oh, you did it with a buddy too? Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, we didn't hunt together, but we yep. booked the hunt together. We flew up there together and then we ended up in different camps. Okay. But yeah. Oh, cool. So, Man. Um, and then I had Sam Solholt with me. He's mm-hmm. who filmed it, which, mm-hmm. you know, Sam and I have become just really good friends um, so I was just stoked to have Sam along on the hunt. He's you know? a stand-up human being. It's oh, so man. good behind the lens, you yeah. know, and it, it is, it gets to be, uh, uh, you know, you guys are a team, uh, when you go up there to capture the footage and totally. to try to kill a ram, but what an experience, man, what an adventure getting up there, like above tree line and really covering country or almost more than you think is humanly possible in your mind. Like so much of this 
it is just like uh, the mindset and and you hunt so much but you're right if we get stuck in this rut where we hike in you know two three miles or we hike in five miles and we hike and hunt the surrounding country but when you're on a sheep hunt for that many days on end and you have to cover this immense amount of terrain all with your leg power pretty soon you know you're doing five ten miles a day and stretching it through this rugged terrain or three to five thousand vert uh had to be wild like that's what you're talking about about changing your mindset of what's possible right yeah exactly yeah yep just just the vastness of the landscape, the difficulty of the terrain, the amount of weight we were packing, the, you know. What the, the packs were pretty heavy. You were saying yeah. like 60 to 70 pounds. You just need so much gear for uh, that. Ten days. Yeah, ten you know? days. Yep. And there's three of you, and we're filming it, you know, oh, so yeah. we have all that kind of extra stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so we spread it out. Like, I carried all of our garbage for the three of us, and um, I carried our fuel but in exchange, Sam carried our two-man tent, you know, and it was always just this give and take. I mean, yeah. So we all had about the same amount of weight, but, it, yeah, it, it definitely adds up. It know? is um, uh, Weight is the equalizer, right? When you stick a backpack on your back and then you go cover miles, uh, like you can walk forever with no weight on you, no backpack, no nothing. You can right. walk forever. But you stick that weight on your back, it just wears on you. Like that is such a difference maker. It makes everything tougher. Totally. And the other thing is, is like a lot of that footing was just talus and mm. rocky, unsecure side hill. You know, unlike hunting, you know, Montana where you kind of got that solid footing every step and it's pretty you know, consistent up there was the rocky terrain is probably what got to me the most, which was about in the middle of the hunt, the outsides of my knees started getting sore. Like mm-hmm. I think they call it the IT band, yep. um, which I had never felt before, but I felt it on that hunt. Okay. And I took like for a couple mornings, I'd take a couple of Excedrin to kind of just kickstart the day. And after that, like I worked through it and it was fine, but it was definitely like that boulder walking mm-hmm. that I was not used to, mm-hmm. you know, and that's where I was saying like following Dustin, like normal, regular hiking, walking, I could keep up. You get into that difficult, steep, technical terrain, Dustin excels. Like he doesn't even... He drifts across it effortlessly, you know. Man, that had to be cool to see. Well, he's just conditioned to it. He's been doing it his whole life. And when you when you do something your whole life, like uh, your body kind of adapts to that. And then you just get really good at it. Same yeah. way we are in Montana country or navigating through. We've been doing it our whole lives. And you take a flatlander with us and they can't keep up sure. or go at our pace. But, uh, yeah, it had to be uh, humbling or a little wild for you because you're always in the best shape, you know, when you're <laughs> hunting is to go with somebody that's in uh, better shape or better suited for those mountains. Yeah, had to be pretty cool to see. It was. I mean, the amount of times I'd look back at Sam, like, and point to Dustin, like, look at this guy, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and we would just look at each other and laugh and shake our head, like, oh my god, he's so freaking good. Uh, Yeah, and so uh, I I can't wait to watch the film, man. It has to be amazing. Just your storytelling ability, and then. I just love watching films in extreme terrain, and that's like the the most extreme you can get up in that country. 100%. Uh, Man, have you been working on the editing at all, or is this a project down the road? No, the film is going to drop this summer. Um, 
probably middle of the summer wrapped around like total archery challenge mm-hmm. in Bozeman we're thinking mm-hmm. um, but I did release the trailer I announced the film at Sheep Show a couple weeks ago so oh, wow. I dropped a six and a half minute trailer which I can show you when we get off of I here, can't but, wait um, yeah diving into it I have more interviews I need to do but other than that most of it's shot mm-hmm. you know it started like I said in 2018 is when I planned the hunt and I planned the film the film was supposed to come out in 2020 but I couldn't get to Canada. So two years delayed me getting to Canada to film the hunt portion of the film. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, as things often kind of work out, as much as that's not how I would have, like, chosen it to go, it was a blessing in disguise. The content I've been able to get over the last two years that's relevant to the film that I wouldn't have got if I would have put it out in 2020, mm-hmm. I'm kind of now like happy that things worked Mm -hmm. out they did because some of the tightest parts in my opinion of the film came in the last couple years Mm -hmm. you know Boone and Crockett had their 135th anniversary and for the first time ever they allowed people in the room with the panel scores for the last seven year awards when they were scoring all the latest world records and species from across the North America, basically. Mm-hmm. They let us in the room for the first time in 135 years of the club's existence. Wow. And we filmed it, you know. And so, like, got to film the panel scoring the new number four Bighorn and the whole process and, you know, the Wonders of Wildlife Museum, Johnny Morris's you know what he did there in Springfield with the wonders of wildlife is incredible absolutely incredible and they're so stoked about the project I mean they flat out like rolled out the red carpet for us to film in that museum so some of the scenes that we got in the museum being able to film professionally in a museum was pretty fun you know because you don't get that a lot those controlled sort of circumstances in a place so grand as a museum Mm -hmm. and the fact that their whole mission with wonders of wildlife is to prove how hunting is conservation i mean that's the whole messaging behind wonders of wildlife so when they heard about this selective film they were just like how can we help what can we do you know do you need these lights shut off should we turn the sound on here should we you know they literally rolled out the red carpet and so blessing in disguise the way it worked out but i'm you know just so stoked for some of those scenes i can't wait (laughs) yeah where can guys watch the film where's it going to come out at so we're going to launch it at TAC. uh like i said kind of under the stars raise some money for sheep and boone and crockett and then uh it'll immediately go on outdoor and sportsman's channel Mm -hmm. um and then from there it'll land online through a number of platforms but the you know the one that i can promise it'll land on right now is wild sheep foundation's youtube page okay so man how cool i can't uh i can't wait to see it and um it's nice that you don't have to rush through these projects you know you're uh so talented and so skillful but we get caught up having produce to produce content not that you would have rushed your way through it i'm sure it would have been an amazing film but to be able to take this much time and this much effort into this film uh it's going to be absolutely one of a kind i bet you're so excited to release it i am man and it's you know it's not like a 
uh, in-your-face kind of film to the anti-hunting community. It's it's not defending trophy hunting as much as it is defining it from the beginning to now, but furthermore, explaining what selective hunting is moving forward. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of nuances in hunting that we didn't have to deal with growing up, that our dads didn't have to deal with growing up, that we are now, and... We've come to this place where a human population, how effective we are, how much information is out there, um, you know, we've gotten to a place, in my opinion, where we're sort of overstepping uh, our reach with wildlife. And so I think more than ever, and hunters have always led the way. Hunters have always made the right decisions in the name of wildlife. And I think we're facing a time right now where guys like you and I and people who care about this um, need to start making decisions that's best for wildlife, even if it's legal, even if there's tags, even if you're not doing anything wrong. I think that we're starting to recognize the problems in our wildlife management as hunters. And I think now more than ever, we need to be self-policing and we need to really lay that groundwork of what is selective hunting and why is it so important? You know, what's the difference between shooting a two point mule deer and saying, I don't care about the horns. I just want meat. It's fine. But (laughs) what's the difference between that and killing a white tailed doe on the river? If you just want meat, well, There's a big difference, a real big difference for the health of that herd, what's healthy for the wildlife, the continuation, all of it down the line. So I want Selective as a film to do a good job of explaining what selective hunting is now because it's different. I think a lot of people think that I'm going to come out with this film and all I'm going to talk about is killing the biggest, baddest animal on the mountain which that is a part of selective hunting, but that's only in places where the ecosystem and the herd structure and the age class is perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, you have it all. You've got, you know, young bucks, you got young does, you got multiple fawns, you have old dry does, you have old bucks that are dying at old age. Those are the scenarios where targeting like those super old bucks and killing them is a great thing for that environment. But you know, you turn around and you go to some areas where there's more deer, say, you know, 200 deer coming into an alfalfa field or something, and there's five bucks. And the oldest one is a three-and-a-half-year-old spindly little four-point. You know, people need to understand that killing that buck because he's the oldest one in that herd is not the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, in that scenario, leave the bucks alone, kill 170 does, Mm -hmm. and don't touch your bucks. That is as much selective hunting as killing a 12-year-old ram in the Northwest Territories. Mm -hmm. They equally serve their purpose. So that's really been like the light bulb going off moment for me in this whole project and all the interviews I've done is selective hunting is a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And when you pull that word trophy out of it, it's easier to um, like have real conversations around it because people get too caught up in that trophy side of things mm-hmm. and, and that's all they hear. When they hear selective, that's so many things. 
And what I love about selective hunting is it brings us all back together again. Like whether you're a substance hunter, whether you're the guy that wants the biggest thing on the mountain or anywhere in between, if we're all selective hunting for the health of the wildlife, not for our own reasons, which you can still selfishly hunt for your own reasons within that. But if you're killing the animals when they're right, selective harvest is substance hunting. Selective harvest is trophy hunting. Selective harvest is depredation hunting you know Mm -hmm. selective is hunting Mm -hmm. it's it brings us all back together as we're just hunters Mm -hmm. and if we have this understanding of you know what we're doing out there on a greater level than just i need to fill the freezer this year Mm -hmm. um instilling that thought process in people i think is is important moving forward you know like when we grew up our dads kind of had that mentality like well if you aren't putting blood on the tailgate we aren't hunting you know like or you know how many times have i heard well just shoot it you know it's your first one just get one under your belt that's fine i have nothing against that but like i've taught my boys to be selective hunters from the beginning and i not that i think you know everybody needs to do that i just think that it's okay. Like our wildlife cannot withstand the amount of people, pressure, and information we have been putting on it. And that's where I'm coming back to the fact that I think we just need to pause for a minute and look at what we're doing on a grand scale. Mm-hmm. And um, so like, for example, my boy um, wanted an antelope tag so bad. Last year was the first year he could apply and draw an antelope. And he didn't get it. So this year he really wanted the antelope tag and he got one and, but I've instilled these things in him. So we go out there and we hunt for about half a day and we finally see an antelope buck and we kind of sneak in, we get close 280 yards. We peek over the little rise and we're looking and I said, well, if you like him, bud, take him. And he's looking through his scope because I don't know, daddy, he, he doesn't have any prongs and he just looks young and he started breaking down. He's 14 years old. You know, he starts breaking down this antelope, and he was 100% correct in everything he said. And I said, well, if you like the looks of him, you know. And he goes, nah, I kind of want to wait. I want one with, I, I, I just want one with bigger prongs, you know. And I said, good on you, man. And so he walked away from that situation not feeling like, you know, it was an unsuccessful hunt that day. He walked away feeling proud that he made that decision and made that choice. And and so, you know, I could go on and on about this subject because I'm so involved in it right mm-hmm. now with this film. But I'm not taking this project lightly because I think that selective hunting is absolutely something that needs to be defined better as we move forward for the benefit of wildlife Mm -hmm. and for the benefit of us and our kids still having good experiences Mm -hmm. into the future. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we've learned here recently that science-based decisions aren't always at the forefront of what's happening now. Mm And as hunters, like I said, we've always led the way. And if we believe that that, those decisions aren't being made for the right reasons, other than politics or money or power, or things that don't actually involve the best decisions for wildlife, then it's, you know, our place as hunters to stand up and say, no, 
you know, this isn't okay. This isn't right. Mm -hmm. Even though it could be legal, you know, so I think we're at a critical crossroads. I, I maybe go a little too far down the road, but I think we're past the point of healthy pressure Mm -hmm. that we're putting on our wildlife. Mm -hmm. I really do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, man, it's, um, it's so interesting. That's, um, it's so, it's so well thought out. I can tell you've spent a lot of time thinking about, I've had a really tough time defining it, you know, defining trophy hunting. And, and I love that term of selective hunting. And, and I love the maturity that, that we're all getting to this place where, you know, maybe I didn't always do the best thing for the herd when I was younger. I didn't know better and I was chasing yeah, big bucks. Yeah, you don't know what you don't know. And, and sometimes you get in a low population situation and, and, and still find a big buck and end up harvesting it. But you're right to, to, look, at the, um, to look at the herd's health. Like I, I know I've started to mature as a hunter, and when I have a hunt or I have a tag, I'm also taking a tally on um, uh, the population. Is it a healthy population? Like that moose hunt this year, seeing 40 moose, now all of a sudden I can feel like there's a healthy population. I'm seeing cows and calves. I'm seeing young bulls, you know, and big bulls were few and far between, but I did see a handful of those too, you know. Yep. So I can feel like this is a real healthy herd in this mountain range. I feel good, you know, I have a legal tag, but I really feel good about harvesting an older age class moose because I know there's a bunch coming up. Uh, I know they'll fill the place of it. The The herd's going to continue to thrive in this area, but you're right. It's like a more mature look at it. So it is super beneficial for us hunters now, for the hunters in the future. And, and you're right. We almost have to start self-policing ourselves. And, and uh, you know, I don't know, you know, if, uh, hunting a, a spot in Montana that I've hunted for years. It's the poorest year I've ever seen in there. It's going so far downhill. And I'm, you know, and then it, it makes me take a, a deeper look into it. Is it the, the doe harvest? Is it, you know, and, and a lot of it is the hunting pressure, like you say, that we're going to have to have some changes, but they lag behind what's happening in real time. And us as hunters that, are, that have been in these areas for uh for years hunting these different places uh we can take tabs on the wildlife and how the herd's doing uh and then we can affect laws in the future we can affect uh tags in the future hopefully by by being able to influence by letting them know what we're seeing on the ground but it is a a self-policing uh maturing of hunters and really looking at that herd and doing what's right for them and and we do you know is so driven for so long but but now it is about the experience and the adventure, and you want the next generation to be able to experience that as well. And um, there's going to definitely have to be changes along the line. But you, you've done what I have struggled to do for years is to uh, uh, really come up with the words to describe the type of hunting I like to do, you know, or like uh, uh, I've really struggled with, with how to describe, you know, uh, uh, trophy hunting, which now selective hunting is a way better term, like yeah. you say. Yeah. Um, uh, but but I can just tell how well thought out this is, how well talked out this is, and uh, how much time and effort you've put into this. So I, I can't wait to see the film where you, you lay it out even better for us. Yeah, I, I can't wait. Yeah. Well, it's... You know, I enjoy, and I learn so much. It's like, you know, you sit down and you interview the world's experts on these subjects. It's like, you know, just a front seat to, like, the best education you can get on wildlife conservation. And through years of doing it with sheep and mule deer and elk and turkeys and whitetail and, and 
you know, trophy hunting. And you start to see the problems or the holes in what we're doing, you know, and, and, um, you're a hundred percent correct. I mean, I have never seen worse hunting in my entire life than I did this year in Montana. And, um, I think it's our own fault. You know, I mean, you know, fish, wildlife, and parks, they set their quotas or their, their limitations on certain areas and what we can and can't do. But, you know, everybody's just shaking their head, like, where'd the deer go? And, you know, it's not like we're finding them dead. Like, you know, if blue tongue comes in or EHD or something, you find them dead all over. And like, it's changed so quick in the last yeah. year or two, you know, really. And so seen. it's like, I feel like, where have the deer gone? Why aren't we finding them? Well, they're leaving in the back of pickup trucks. That's why we're not finding mm -hmm. them. We're just way overstepping it. Mm -hmm. Like, There's only so many mature bucks. Exactly. And, and when you're, you know, they're, you know the, no limitations to how many hunters can come in an area. It's not managed that way. And then not self-police where you're shooting every buck you see during the rut, which is the Achilles heel of the deer. Right. Um, it doesn't take long to start going way downhill. And like you say, the, the technology, the information, everything is advanced so far. We're so effective now uh, that, a, that a three, four-year-old buck has a tough time surviving out there on public yep. ground. Totally. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think we're just to the point where if we just bring awareness to it and recognize it and kind of think about it differently, I think it's going to be super important moving forward for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't have to kill to survive nowadays. You know, we do hunt to eat still. We do enjoy it. But at the end of the day, if you don't pull that trigger, send that arrow, you're not going to starve mm -hmm. at the end of the day, mm -hmm. you know? So we, you know, our decisions aren't that drastic. Like there, it is not life or death. Mm -mm. So, yeah, I just, I just think that the hunting industry has went wide open down one path for so long and we've been so successful at it that in my opinion, what you're saying, what I'm saying, I think we're past the threshold. You know, like David Attenborough, to me, is like one of my biggest inspirations. And I'll never forget, he put out a film here called uh, a, Life on, a Life on This Planet. And it's basically his life's work looking back on him as this environmentalist, naturalist, traveling the world, documenting wildlife populations and all of these things. And he has a line in this film called, that says something to the effect of, as a young boy growing up, I was enamored by the natural world and um, in all its beauty and all these things. And, and he comes around to say what I didn't realize is I was, what I was witnessing was a dying planet. You know, and he goes on to say, like, I didn't recognize it at the time, but now I do. You know, what I was, what I thought was flourishing was actually on its way downhill. And he goes through all these explanations. And I think, not going too far down that rabbit hole, but I think we're there as hunters too, you know. I mean, look at this room, you know. Look at, look at tag sales. Look at tag prices. Look at, I mean, like I said, 
we've done such a good job of recruiting and inspiring and bringing people to the table that now our problem is self-policing because you know i don't have faith in the officials to make the right decisions for wildlife you know i hate to say that but it's only just because they don't prove me any differently Mm -hmm. you know i shake my head on decisions being made by our state officials all the time me too I can't understand it. Like, if you truly love wildlife, how could you possibly think that that is a good idea? <laughs> you know, but that's a whole other deal. I just, I think the self-policing aspect, and I think it's got to come from guys like you and, and, and Eastman's and people that people look up to need to be the ones to start to say this, you know, instead of just promote, 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 wide open, wide open sales, promote, you know tips and tactics all this stuff i think it's we definitely have to like be the leaders and say it's time for a change Mm -hmm. and here's what how we can do it Mm -hmm. with the power that we have right now Mm -hmm. you know so so moving forward um I, I think it is that it's voicing this more. It's it's trying to be self policing and having, um, uh, you know, being respectful out in the woods. Like there's exactly. just a lot of things that go on uh, that I'm not proud to be a hunter that I get to wit that I have witnessed. You know, where that is not the right way to go about things, and that that's all the way from uh, uh, dealing with the pressure and having you know a guy see you and go right into where you're hunting, you know, instead of going the opposite direction <laughs> and giving you space or instead of having a discussion of where you're going to go all the way to, uh, uh, unethical shots to, uh, harvesting, uh, way too much for the resource. And so moving forward, it, it is like about us talking about it and voicing it, but it's really starting to, you know, we need to, to implement change and it starts with the hunters. And so just having this, this viewpoint, I think where we do love the wild world and we love the animals in it and, and trying to protect that and look out for their well being. wouldn't you say, or what would you say moving forward? How do you see a way out of this or a way that we can still enjoy what we love to do? And our kids will be able to enjoy what we love to do. Well, I think, I think it just comes with discussions like this and, you know, you can't, it's a big ship, so it's not going to move quickly, but recognizing the problems within it and starting to have those conversations is the first step. Um, the next step is the follow-up, you know, getting people to practice that ideal, uh, that idea of selective harvest and management and, and doing a better job of, like, we have this whole platform to teach people and inspire people and do things. Nobody, instead of, you know, talking about how to get that elk in an extra 30 yards, we should be having more of these conversations, you know, conversations that are super important to the, the, you know, continuation of this room, because at the end of the day, without wildlife, this room doesn't exist. And so if we're not, looking after the wildlife first and foremost above sales of what we're doing then we're going down a a one-way street you know and when so i obviously i don't have the answer for that but i think just bringing awareness to it teaching it preaching it practicing it explaining it 
you know, getting across the importance of the difference of, like I said, shooting a two-point muley for meat versus a white-tailed doe or a cow elk for meat versus a raghorn. And that's fine if you don't care about the horns, but understand what you're doing within your actions. Because to say I don't care about the horns is just kind of like this write-off, like, ah, I'll, I'll fucking kill anything. It doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. <laughs> it matters to all of us. Mm -hmm. The same as you or me hunting something big. And even you if know, they don't care about the horns, like you say, a lot of those guys are shooting the raghorns or are shooting the two They're doing point. things that aren't healthy for the herds. Yeah. And their excuse is, well, I don't care about the horns, as though it, it just doesn't matter. Well, it does. In fact, it, it hurts us a lot. If you don't care about the horns and you shoot a raghorn out of a herd of 200 and it's the only bull, I mean, come on, man. That's not good. Mm -hmm. And I just think, we need to be better about explaining why is that not good mm -hmm. and not like, you know, like shunning people or like shaming them. I don't know. I don't take away from anybody hunting the way they want to hunt and fulfilling their own personal reasons and out there gaining what they want to gain for their reasons. Like that's the beautiful part about hunting. And I would never want to try to strip that from anybody, but those people care about wildlife. You know, any hunter I've ever met cares about wildlife. I just don't think a lot of them, you know, understand it. Um, what their actions mean when they're out there and what that means for the longevity of the herd. You know, like on this selective film, one quote is... <clears throat> And it's from Glenda, the outfitter I hunted with in the Northwest, Northwest Territories. She's like, you know, if you have a seven-year-old ram on the side of the mountain, and he's bigger than this 12-year-old ram, and you kill the seven-and-a-half-year-old ram, you've essentially taken two sheep off the mountain. Because that 12-year-old, he's not a breeder anymore. He's likely going to die that winter. And then you killed the breeder ram, the ram that is good for the herd, you know. And so getting people to understand that shooting the wrong animal at the wrong time is essentially taking two or maybe even more mm -hmm. is a way of looking at it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I don't know, man. It's a big ship to steer, and I, I, I believe it. I don't know if it's true, but in my mind and what I've learned and where I hunt and people I admire and look up to and the things that I do all suggest that we're, we're we've gone too far in my opinion mm -hmm. yeah I know um you know there's some stuff that goes on uh in my valley in the Madison Valley uh that I've never taken part of but um uh, there's some stuff that goes on that I'm not proud about that goes on with harvest down there. And those cows do need to be harvest. And I believe, you know, in a lot of the, the rules that we have in place is a branch antler bull or a cow, you mm -hmm. know, which is good. And a lot of guys will shoot the cow for the meat, but some of the stuff that goes on would make you sick in my valley. Like um, these elk get pushed down out of the mountains and get pushed to these flats. And um, uh, these guys show up by the hundreds in these vehicles and chasing these elk across the flats and parking rigs on roads. And uh, there's tickets written nonstop. 
and um, they'll hunt them all the way into the late season. And when you're taking a cow in the late season, uh, you shoot one, you're taking two because they're, you're taking their calf as well. And then there's just so many long shots into big herds. It's just wounding <clears throat> so many of these elk. And, and you know, part of it is, is the ranchers don't like the elk in their food source and want to take more of them out. But it's just, um, it's not hunting. It, no, it's, it's harvesting, you know, and, and I'm all for, for a family getting their meat for the year. Uh, but some of the stuff I see out there just makes me sick with hunters out there. And somebody's going to get shot out there on those flats. And that warden, they'll have multiple wardens out there every day. And, and the elk are just um, uh, out of the mountains trying to survive and trying to right, winter. But some winter. of that stuff that goes on is so unethical, even though it's legal. Right. That I, I just, it makes me sick to even see it go <laughs> on, you know. So uh, just making better decisions, too. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it is so important for the future of our wildlife and something that we love so much. Uh, we have to fight to protect. And if they're not going to put the rules in place, we, we have to self-police yeah. and do what's right for the herd, man. It's so um, yeah, so powerful. Yeah. And, and what I understood from the vast majority of people that reach out to me about it is they're willing to give up their opportunity for better wildlife. Mm-hmm. You know, Montanans who love to hunt mule deer during the rut are sending me message saying, I will stop hunting the rut to see the mule deer come back. What do we have to do? Is it less tags? Is it not rut hunting? Is it draw every five years? These are hunters who, like us, live and breathe it. They want to do it, but they would rather see the success of the herd, and they're concerned. And so that's what I love about this hunting community and the, the conservation values and why hunters have always been the leaders in this is because we care so much about the wildlife that our decisions are based on their future and we're, we've hit this point. And so the amount of people who have reached out and said things to me, like, like I said, like, I don't even care if I don't get to hunt mule deer every year. I just want to see the bucks come back. It's just sad. You know, I drive these roads. I don't see the numbers. I don't see the quality. I don't see, you know, you, you know how it is. You get messages and people sending you stuff all the time, but the over uh the overshadowing um messaging i'm getting from a lot of hunters is love what you do have always supported what you've done but do you think now you could use your platform to talk about what's wrong because i mean that's cool you know good for you you went out and killed a nice buck in the rut this year but that's not the overall like we would support you more if you would talk about the problems we're facing versus just promoting mule deer hunting the rut in Montana because it's not what it used to be. I mean, I remember growing up, not to sound like my dad, but I remember when we would drive after dark to go back to the town where we were staying when we would deer hunt, you couldn't even hit the speed limit because there were so many deer on the side of the roads. You could go like 45 down the highway, you know, at night and it was no more because there were so many deer and I remember one day last year I went out I got in my side by side and I just went to every high point I could glassing and I started at one in the afternoon and I went to dark and never saw a single deer not one and I wasn't like digging into one canyon I was literally hitting high points I was glassing miles across basins ag fields private, public, all of it, not a single doe, not a fawn. And I'm telling you, man, 
growing up, we used to leave where we could hunt to go drive through that area at prime time just to see the deer. Mm-hmm. And now, there even those areas, there's just not the deer. Not the know? deer, not hardly any. Nothing. Yeah, it's just I, nothing. I know what you're talking about. Like the, uh, you know, ten to twenty years ago, there was deer everywhere everywhere just littered through yeah, bucks exactly. and does and such a healthy population and yeah it's just changed where it's getting tough to turn up a deer you know place where you know if you would have done that 15 years ago you would have counted over 100 deer oh. and probably 20 bucks yeah or if not more right uh, yeah and for you not to see a deer things are changing not you know? one not one deer <laughs> that is crazy yeah yeah it is crazy. It's, it's and tough to see things go downhill or see herds mm. go downhill or, you know, you have hunting spots that, that you have some of the greatest experiences in, you know, that you have these wild adventures and uh, see bucks and end up harvesting a good buck, putting a bunch of work for it. And uh, to, to watch those places change, you know, it's, um, it's tough because you fall in love with that country and uh, it, it's, it, it's hard not to think that it's going to last forever, but it doesn't take long to change. Yeah, and I think um, because of that longevity, because of seeing what it has the potential to yield and support is part of the reason why it comes back to that self-policing thing. Like, it's not a habitat issue. Mm -hmm. We know the habitat can sustain thousands of deer on it Mm -hmm. and do just fine. There's like maybe four more houses there than when I was little. So it's not like a development thing. No. You know. So what what's the problem then? If mm-hmm. it's not habitat and it's not development and it's not all these things, what is the problem? Well, we have had drought, but that's just a natural thing. I just, I, like I said, everybody's like, well, where are the deer going? I do believe the deer left in coolers <laughs> in they the did. back of people's trucks. It, it was, uh, you know, uh, you can't give four doe tags to individuals in an area for deer I wouldn't give four mule deer doe tags statewide if it were up to me. Me neither. And the fact that somebody can go over the counter and get four doe tags in our state and go fill them is crazy Mm -hmm. to me. Crazy. It it does come down to management, Um, you know, management and us hunters self-policing. But, you know, you can go over the border in another state that manages different that may only be a hundred miles away but the same looking country the same feel the same coolies and canyons and it's full of deer and full of bucks and healthy population just due to their management and and managing each area for a healthy population totally uh we've managed so long in our home state of montana for opportunity and and that's fine i do want everybody to have opportunity but it gets to this tipping point where all of a sudden now we have so many new people that move there we sell so many non-resident tags that uh, that, that we can't manage on opportunity because not everybody can have that opportunity. So there's got to be some changes, you yeah. know, there's got to be some changes for the better of the herd. Right. Otherwise it'll be gone forever and nobody will be able to enjoy it. So you're right. We do need to start that change. And part of it too, uh, is just, um, being able to reach hunters to be able to influence our game departments to change those. Rules, right. You yeah. Know? Because yeah, some of that stuff, like the four doe tags, uh, it's just taking our herds so far downhill and they, that's not what our herds need right now. At this point. <laughs> no, yeah, no, yeah. you know, and the bucks are 50% of the genetics, the does are the other 50. So mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, it, uh, 
I think I think we're on the right step, just recognizing it, talking about it, getting it out there, getting other people to talk about it, getting other people to dig for solutions and 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 yeah, just leading the way, man. That's that's why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. And from TV show and podcasting to just hunters is you know, leading the way, mm-hmm. making the right decisions. Mm-hmm. What's well, a uh, super important conversation. So I'm, I'm glad like you could come sit down with me and then you're able to articulate it so well. Uh, I love like you explaining selective hunting, that 10 minute clip of that, or just like um, uh, uh, that really speaks to me, you know? So, um, man, I, I really appreciate you. I really like these conversations and I really like today's conversation. Um, Man, I just think it's super important that we have these and break these down and try to educate others. But also, you know, you're educating me, you know, as I'm sitting at the table, which is um, uh, which I really appreciate because that is the future of hunting mule deer for sure. It's the future of hunting entirely. Oh, you're right. You know, mule deer is the bellwether, kind of like sheep, you know, they're they're going to be the first to suffer. But but overall, it's the future of everything, I believe it is, you know, yeah. So, yeah, I'm excited for you to see Selective. The whole film starts with a trophy collection in the Bronx Zoo in the early 1900s that was... So, interestingly enough, conservation was started by a trophy collection of heads and horns. And it was called the National Collection of Heads and Horns. Theodore Roosevelt and his buddies went out, and they literally traveled the world, and they shot everything they could. Like, everything. Like, eagles... (laughs) ostriches like everything they could and they mounted it all and they put together this uh collection it's called the north american um collection of heads and horns the national collection and theodore roosevelt had this idea to put it in the entrance of the bronx zoo so at the time the bronx zoo zoos in general were like the biggest attractions worldwide you know you couldn't see these animals on films. You couldn't get photographs of them. You either had to go where they lived or go to zoos. And so zoos were huge. You know, they were like bringing more people than national parks. And and so Theodore Roosevelt recognized this and he built this national collection and he made this room that you basically had to walk through to go into the zoo. And it was a trophy collection. And he put an insignia above the doorway that said, in memory of vanishing big game of the world. And so people who showed up to see live animals and get inspired and be happy would show up to the zoo and they would see this in memory of vanishing big game of the world. And they would walk into this room and they would see zebras and giraffes and lions and tigers. and, and, And for the first time, the public was like, what is happening? Why are they vanishing? What can we do to be involved? And so his tactic worked. It got the public so scared about the future of wildlife that for the first time they wanted to be involved. And the public's um, opinion, there was the first time the public started to make decisions for wildlife. And it was based on a trophy collection that was a scare tactic that is still the national collection that's in Springfield, Missouri, there at the Wonders of Wildlife Museum. Hmm. And uh, so I think a cool point to bring out is if you look at or Google or research the national collection nowadays, it's called the memorial that was never needed. 
because there wasn't a single animal that vanished off of our planet because of that, you know, because of that scare tactic and getting people to go in and go, wait a minute, these animals are vanishing? What's happening? How can I help? What do I got to do? I don't want to see this thing gone, you know? So I think it's really interesting that conservation was started by a, a trophy collection of taxidermy, you know? So that's that's where the film starts. That's wild, man. That's so (laughs) cool. Yeah, I can't wait to watch the film. Um, Yeah, man, it's amazing. Uh, uh, Your ability to tell stories, too, through your films is amazing. So I I can't wait to see how you put this together, all the pieces and parts, and more than just a hunt that you did. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Even though that's a huge part of it and the part that I (laughs) want to see, but I want to see all the other stuff and the story behind it. Uh, so it sounds amazing, man. You got to be super proud of it. I am. Yeah, I am. I think of any project I've ever done, this one's probably going to get the most <clears throat> traction because mm-hmm. it's relative to all of us in this room. You know, no matter what you hunt, how you hunt, where you hunt. Mm-hmm. Yep. How so, cool. Yeah. Well, you're the man. Thanks for coming <laughs> in and discussing it, it for me. Absolutely. Yeah. I appreciate the invite. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, um, it's great. That's the future. That's where we need to go. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks, Jason. Thank you, Brian. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Again, um, always fun conversation with Jason. Um, the guy is a, a absolute stud of a hunter and um, uh, so talented with his films and his, his TV show. Uh, it's just amazing. It's one of the ones that I really enjoy. So uh, good work to him. Uh, on that film, make sure to go check out Selective and all his films he has out and Into High Country with Jason Maxinger. Does a great job at that show. He's just a great storyteller, great videographer. Um, man, yeah, I just uh, uh, strive to put out uh, quality films like that guy does. It's amazing. So go check those out. Check out everything we're doing at Eastman's. Again, check out that new podcast with Dan Picard and I, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Life of a... a Life of a podcaster is almost what I said. That's about it. Life of a bow hunter. Uh, you can search it. It's on a different feed. I'm really proud of how that one's coming out. We'll be releasing episode nine tomorrow on Friday. So we release one every other Friday, but uh, they're just great episodes. Um, so make sure to go check those out. Uh, check us out. The new Beyond the Grids are out. You can watch Dan Picard kill his biggest bull to date. I've got some episodes coming up, so uh, make sure to check out the new season over there and our magazines, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. Uh, we really appreciate the support with everything we do, and um, thanks for the uh, support on this podcast. Uh, make sure to subscribe. Uh, if you leave a review on iTunes, that really helps me out, helps out the algorithm, and uh, if you hear an episode that you really like, uh, sharing it on social media is also a huge help, so um Thanks, you guys, man. I really appreciate making this podcast go. It's amazing. And with that, man, just getting back from this trip, so amazing, man. I just have such good friends out there that I I love spending time with them, and they really help with all the logistics of picking me up, dropping me off, letting me stay at their place, giving me a rig to use. We hunted a couple different islands. Mouflon sheep was amazing. Uh, I was really fortunate. There wasn't as many of them populations kind of down right now, but I was able to harvest a great ram and just the gnarliest lava rock canyons uh, in the heat and in the open country and with those switched on sheep. It was um, it was quite a feat. I'm pretty proud of it. So I'll be releasing the pictures on social media. 
uh, did kill some axis as well, had some insane axis hunting during the rut, calling, which they're similar to elk when they're calling like that. And just such a cool switched on species. They eat so good, brought back a bunch of meat, and I killed my best axis to date. I finally broke the 30-inch mark, which I've been trying to do for probably a half dozen trips over there. And uh, it's really tough to kill those big ones. My buddies are good at it. Uh, I've got a couple bucks that are in the 29, even one that goes 29 and a half, but I finally broke the 30-inch mark with a giant axis deer. So uh, super pumped about that, super pumped at my execution, uh, my hunting skill set out there, uh, really went hard and just had a pile of fun. Man, it just uh, gets me recharged for everything in life, for work, for family, for this hunting season. I can't wait. I'm so glad I did this trip and just can't thank my buddies enough for for their help on um, on everything and just for their friendship as well. I just really enjoy spending time with them. So, man, it's absolutely amazing. I'm, so I'm riding a high trying to get this podcast out to you guys, get caught up at work, but... Um, it was something else for sure. So I'll record a podcast where I talk about it a bit. And um, like I say, we'll release it on social media. And thanks again to the support of you guys and support of Eastman's. And um, with that, I'll check in with you guys next week.